From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. It's late season nitrogen application time in much of the northern United States. And for those that still have not heard about the changes in recommendations for this critical fertilization time, we have Professor Carl Guillard to discuss the latest research and progressive thinking on nitrogen fertilization in turf. Carl Guillard is a professor of agronomy and a teaching fellow at the University of Connecticut, where he teaches a number of plant and soil science courses. Carl has received literally dozens of teaching awards in his career spanning four decades. We sat down recently to discuss his perspective on turfgrass fertilization and particularly nitrogen fertilization and water quality protection. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we're grateful to our partners at Dryjack Den Intelligence. Carl Guillard, welcome to Frankly Speaking. It's so great to have you on. In preparation for this conversation, I looked at your bona fides, if you will, and it's so interesting that your degree from Penn State initially is in general agriculture. So did you come from a farming background and then sort of go to school for it and then the tides turned and you wound up in turf? But how did you uh, start in ag and wind up in turf? Uh, Thanks, Frank. So first off, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, no, I did not have a turf background to uh, start out with. And uh, when I was in high school, my father bought some farmland. He wanted to retire and do some farming. And we all thought it was kind of funny because he was a physician, a country doc, and he wanted to get back to the land. As he got into that and then starting accumulating equipment, we had farmer neighbors that helped us. And it was really quite interesting. And so I started working on that and changed my whole career from that point onward. So most of my family was in medicine, and that's where I was headed until my dad got the farm and started working it, and that's where it took me into that area. So I definitely had an agricultural background in general ag, knowing about plants, knowing about soils, knowing about animals. And when I got to Connecticut... I started out as a Ph.D. student here working with no-till. And it was during that time period when a lot of the World War II-era faculty were retiring, and they needed replacements, so they started asking me, could I teach this, could I teach that? And I never said no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I never turned down a classroom opportunity, so it took me into that, and... And so in that case, that World War II veteran was Bill Dest. Well, it was it was Walter Washko was one and Bob Peters. So they were the agronomists and weed scientists. Okay. And I worked with Derek Allenson. He was a quite well-known Northeast uh, forage agronomist. So I had grass background. And so when Bill Dest retired, my department head said, you're going to be teaching the uh, turf classes since you know how to grow grass. And I said, well, it's a little bit different, but (laughs) I guess I could do it. And I walked into the classroom, and there's 40 students sitting in the classroom. And I said, well, I know where this career is going to be going now, because at that time, production ag in Connecticut and the interest in it was not very... um, Well, it's nothing of what it is today. Yeah, no, no. Well, but, you know, what's interesting is, listen, I know particularly because even to this day, the UConn Turfgrass program is still training a lot of young people, and and you guys are definitely committed into the classroom like many of the larger turf programs are. But 
I think what was interesting was the the way you onboarded into the turf grass nutrient management realm, right? Yeah. Uh, I look at some of your earliest work with Bill on potassium release rates of sand and the impact of nitrogen and potassium on reed canary grass. And, you know, the release rates on sand is very much like what Doug Soldat's been doing and the yeah. NNK work on reed canary grass, very much a demonstration of demand-driven uptake, right? If you you give more N, you take up more K. And I have to say, Carl, you don't know this, but Wayne Cousseau was a colleague of mine in Wisconsin for many years. And I see you in him because neither one of you guys were turf people when you came here. So what is it about you guys that don't go into turf that ask these very simple questions that it takes a while for people to sort of say, well, is it really like that? Because you know, like I know, it didn't seem like we could buy enough potassium fertilizer for many years. <laughs> well, I, I think the advantage of people coming in outside is you don't necessarily have any inbred biases, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you come at it from a different perspective. And there had been a lot of advantages. So when I moved from production ag into turf... There were a lot of things being done in the nutrient management area that were far ahead of what was being done in the in the turf industry. And so since I had some basic training in that, and honestly, I, w- I was frankly pretty surprised when I moved into the turf and relative to the, especially the nitrogen management, and I was kind of shocked that there was very little, at least advancement or development in terms of the the management recommendations over a long period of time, whereas if you looked at the ag end of it, they they were making a lot of advances, looking at different types of tests, looking at some canopy reflectance measurements and doing some tissue testing and stuff that they were then using those to guide nitrogen fertilization or other management on there. Well, I would say that that is the case, Carl, and particularly as you look at the, the arc of your research, for example, it is littered with exactly what you rattled off. But one of the things it seems like, uh, you know, you noticed and then put into print in that Northeast Fertilization Practice mm-hmm. that Protecting Water Quality publication, you know, when I read what I know is you writing it... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that recommendation in there about nitrogen and potassium. I mean, before there was MLSN, you were saying these things, right? We're using this minimum level of sustainable nutrition sort of interpretation. Many guys are using it as a baseline now. But when you got here, it seemed to me the first thing you thought was, well, not only is it not optimized, you guys are putting it on too much and at the wrong time and for the wrong reasons. Is that what you noticed that sort of prompted you to take this direction? Yeah, I mean, that's a great observation. When I started and looking at that, most of the research at that time on turf was concerned primarily with deficiencies. And with turf and especially nitrogen, knowing when the turf is deficient is not necessarily a very hard call. But the rest of the work was not applied to or looking at how the optimum or even excess. So at that time, you could put a lot of nitrogen on and and still good, good quality turf, but it could have been way past optimum. So everything was geared toward the deficient end of it. And if you got past the deficiency, it's like, so what? You know, it's, it's good turf. 
but now because of the environmental issues and the costs and becomes more of an issue. Well, that's right. And, and hence the advent of concepts like best management practices that are now becoming the common vernacular in our industry, as opposed to something that was just conserved for agriculture. But your work in water quality, to me, was an early sign of that. Can you talk for a little bit about the way you approached it? I mean, that was, again, Carl, you were looking at, well, boy, we have this standard recommendation of a putting on a fair amount of nitrogen at Thanksgiving. And Carl, I was one of those extension faculty throughout the 1990s and in late 80s and early 1990s that was making those late season high rate nitrogen applications. Let's talk for a minute about that particular work, because that water quality stuff, I think, is really what a lot of your work emanates from is is trying to preserve and protect it. That's one of the goals of optimization is is that externality of water quality uh, becomes improved. So what did you notice and what did you set out to do? Yeah, from an agronomic standpoint, fall fertilization and late season fertilization works. I mean, there's no question about it. You put on late season nitrogen in primarily soluble form, you're going to have grass that's greener later into the season in our climate. It's going to green up sooner in the spring. And And there's no question about that. But when I started thinking about it and looking at the physiology of it, it's like, well, how is all that nitrogen going to be getting into the plant? People seem to forget that nitrogen comes into the plant primarily through transpirational flow, water. Water has to be moving through the plant. And how much ET do we get during that time in Thanksgiving or later? Virtually not. Not a whole lot. Yeah. So to get required nitrogen into the plant at that time to get it really green is to put a lot of nitrogen on, but only a little bit is going to be taken up to the in the plant, but it's in a really, really high concentration. Now, what about the argument that, well, you can put slow release on in, and then I got it on, and it sits there, and it, and it gets taken up in the spring, uh, as opposed to say, well, if there's 30% soluble N, uh, you know, that's maybe what you should end up with. Now, there's the science of the recommendation you're going to give me, and then I'm going to bug you about the sort of uh, regulatory environment uh, around that, because a lot of the don't apply late in the season early on in the Northeast, I think, was motivated by a lot of your work. So can you talk about sort of mitigating this a little bit with slow release and then how this has been playing out in the regulatory arena? Yeah, well, I, there are definite conditions where I think slow release would will definitely have an advantage. But I think over in the long term, I think it was some of Marty Petrovic's work that showed in, over the long run uh, for the most part, you, you're going to get about the same amount of nitrogen losses and uptake from slow or, or fast-released uh, formulations. Now, certainly, a slow-release formulation, and if you get a lot of precipitation immediately after that, is, is going to have a protective effect on that. But I don't think we get that much of an advantage to take the risk on water quality for that. But there is an agronomic benefit, so... Oh, there is. Okay, so let me ask the simple question. We used to put on a pound of N, right? Let's say we did it at Thanksgiving. It literally, even in southeastern Connecticut, there's no particular measurable ET. There's not a lot of water moving through that plant Mm -hmm. because generally the temperatures... Uh, are not going to be favorable uh, for such things to happen, right? And sun is lower in the sky and all the reasons that ET is down. But yet, 
there remains an agronomic benefit. Is it that the soil solution is so overloaded? It just what? Yes. Pushes itself in? Yeah, that, uh, that's exactly. And I've thought about this, and I'm, I think the way in the mechanism is that since the, there is some water being taken up, it's not zero. So you have, you have water being moved up through the plant. But in order for the turf grass plant to get that critical mass of nitrogen, the amount of water that it's taking up has to have a really, really high concentration of nitrogen, primarily in nitrate form. So the rest of that is going to be subjected to losses or mobilization uh, because the plant's not going to be able to take it up. Over but we do get the agronomic benefit right. from it because it takes up a critical mass amount in a very, very high concentration, but a little, little tiny amount. So look at it the other way. You could get the same mass amount of nitrogen if you had a really, really low concentration of water, but your ET was really high. So... I suspect in, in high ET times in the summer, the plant's getting sufficient nitrogen at a very, very low concentration in the soil water, but it's taking up a lot of water, so it reaches that critical mass. Carl, it is already a joy to talk with you. We're ready for our first break here. Give people a chance to sort of get in their textbooks and pay attention to the things we're talking about. This is about the most deep dive into nitrogen behavior in the soil and plant uptake you're going to hear. And you're listening to it on Frankly Speaking here on the TurfNet Radio Network. And we're brought to you by our partners at Dryject and Intelligrow. And we'll be right back after a message from them with my pal Carl Guillard at the University of Connecticut. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject. The only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. All right, listen, we ended our conversation on sort of nitrogen behavior in the soil, Carl, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't then start to move into the current thinking on this with regard to organic matter accumulation and nitrogen levels in the soil 
and mineralization rates and that problem that you talked about earlier that you stumbled onto, not stumbled onto, but certainly agriculture was trying to pursue a way to dial in their nitrogen rate, but it didn't appear that our industry was particularly interested in dialing in that rate. And so I would argue for many years, probably put a lot of nitrogen on, we didn't necessarily need, we built a lot of organic matter that then mineralizes over time. And now I've heard you speak about that dynamics. How much more do we understand about being able to time our nitrogen applications, looking at mineralization rates with things like clipping volume that is getting to be popular now? Is is that the sort of end game that you see us going to now where maybe the best thing might be to just monitor growth or are there aspects of the soil that we should still be paying attention to? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, certainly the plant is going to tell you what's going on. We we can take a number of different soil tests, and those are just predictors. It doesn't tell us exactly what the plant is doing. So in, in my mind, if we can do something directly with the plant and do some direct measurements on there, even something as simple as clippings, and I think a lot of folks in the industry have been doing that for a while, and if they're collecting the clippings, you know, especially in the in the golf industry, they'll know how the growth is going relative to that. I mean, there have been historically tissue tests that have been developed. The only problem is there hasn't been a lot of good calibration for that. Yes. And they're expensive. Well, therein lies what I was going to say. You've played around with this, right? Yeah. You're not talking like somebody that looked at a couple of articles and said, boy, I don't think this thing works. You've actually studied these things, looking at on soil anion membranes and foliar end concentrations and Macy's concepts for interpreting things. Uh, you, you've done about as thorough uh, with my colleague, Marty Petrovic, a thorough sort of look at nitrogen. Do we hold some hope in being able to predict mineralization rates and then put nitrogen down or not put nitrogen down and maybe consider irrigating. If nitrogen gets in via water, could you imagine recommending an irrigation strategy for nutrient management versus maybe having to make applications? Well, you know, the concept of fertigation is, is nothing new, but, but all that depends on what, what are you using that as a guide? So I, I think we're still kind of in the point where we need a good objective type of measurement. Now, whether it be something directly with the plant or something directly with the soil to help us guide that. Because honestly, without some form of objective measurement to help us guide, we're just guessing. And sometimes we guess right. Most of the times I suspect we're guessing wrong. So one of the newer concepts that we're working with is some of these tests that are looking at exactly what you said, getting a prediction of mineralization potential. How is that work uh, evolving, right? I know that you've probably talked about this for a long time in your career, and then lo and behold, in the last several years, the concept of soil health uh, has sort of emerged out of the soil guys here at uh, at Cornell and is starting to permeate mm-hmm. the discussion. But, you know, I don't think most people realize what they did here was really confined to a very, very small section of production agriculture and, and nowhere near represents what would make soil healthy for a turf grass system. It might be to a certain extent, but if you look at things like putting greens and athletic fields, 
that test would look at those soils and say, well, they're probably not very healthy by that measure. How do you look at your definition of soil health in the concept of organic matter and nitrogen mineralization? Mm Mm-hmm. So some of the work we're on to now, and that'll be coming out soon in print, is doing these 24-hour carbon dioxide respiration tests Mm -hmm. and a labile amino nitrogen test. So those have been commercially available now. They're little kits that one can use. We've gotten fairly good correlation with a number of different plant growth and quality um, measurements uh, through there. So I think that is moving in the right direction where it'll give one a estimate of, of what the potential of, say, a, a response rate would be if you applied nitrogen. So that's interesting that a superintendent would send their soil in and be able to determine the intricacies of that nitrogen release. And Carl, I'm going to digress with you for a minute and ask your opinion on something that's fairly prevalent in the industry. And that, and that is this idea of carbon fertilization, where they're going with, you know, very low amounts of nitrogen. And you're seeing all these sort of sugar compounds and amino acid compounds being applied. And the spiel I get is, uh, oh, it's unlocking all that nitrogen that's in there, those nutrients that are in there. Does the soil function that simply that all we've got to do is put a little sugar in there and the nitrogen gets released in a way that makes sense? Uh, is that logical, what, what I'm hearing? Well, let, let's follow the science on that. What we don't know, and I think here's the next big area that we have to get a handle on, is the microbiome. So certainly there are changes in populations and ecological services and functions that the different populations of bacteria and fungi, ectidomycetes, and the other mesotrophic levels in the soil that are going on. And that's something I think we have completely ignored or not have looked at, and I think it's because it's very complex. Whereas the chemical and the physical properties of the soil, we can measure those pretty easily. But I think once we start getting a handle on knowing what we have in the populations that we have or the type or the functional groups and what those are related to, I think that's going to help us a lot in guiding us toward fertilization. So yay or nay, you think that we can deliberately encourage the mineralization process through the application of these carbon compounds? I think they certainly do change populations, but how long those populations stay dominant. And in my understanding, this is not my expertise area on there. I'm just getting into it superficially. But the temporal and spatial variation in in the microbiome can change a lot. So we could change something temporarily very quickly. So putting those compounds down, I am sure they change certain population and and functional groups in in the soil. But for how long and and really is it meaningful? I, I, I don't know. It might not hurt. But for sure, I've heard you speak about the dynamics between carbon and nitrogen, the forms in which carbon and nitrogen exist in that organic matter. Can you take a minute and take us to school on... You know, I know you have a slide in particular that stuck with me. I saw it once, and it's, I think, the part of my photographic memory sometimes, that part where how much of it's uh, readily available and recalcitrant and never going to come out and and in the carbon stores. Can you talk a little bit about the carbon and nitrogen dynamics, uh, the food source, if you will, uh, for this microbiome? 
Yeah, sure. So everyone talks about and has at least a superficial understanding of organic matter. So when we talk about, yeah, the soil has a lot of organic matter, but we we need to put it in context is that that organic matter and the carbon associated with it is going to be in many different types and fractions of what's going to be readily available, what they call active carbon or reactive carbon. Those are going to be forms of the sugars that you just talked about and the plant cell contents that break down very rapidly. And then there's particulate organic matter. So that's going to be a little larger form, a little more complex, but still readily available. We could put that into the reactive form. And then we go into the part where we got the lignified types of material and and the waxes and the the polyphenols and the humic and the fulvic acids, those are going to be in the humus area, and that's, those are stable, but they will break down in time. And then there's the recalcitrant form, the very, very stable carbon form. So think of something like charcoal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to stay in the soil for a long, long uh, time. Or biochar now, all the rage on biochar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you have these literally three pools uh, of organic matter. It's so interesting because... You know, growing up in this industry, whenever you hear a word like humus or humates, I'm like, okay, we apply a lot of humates. Do do most of our turf grass systems, I mean, I've seen some of the data with humates. I know you've uh, just published a paper with our pal John Inguijado, your colleague there at Connecticut, on seaweed stuff. Uh, what is your sense of the application of something, regular application of humates to these turf systems uh, in the context of this, uh, these forms of carbon that are already there? I think in a, in a long-standing turf grass system, I think the carbon forms and stuff and the, the microbial biological activity is fairly active, fairly high. So I, I think in a system like that, at least in my opinion, I don't know if you're going to see much of a difference because it's, you're, you're probably at a pretty optimized concentrations or rates in a system like that. So let me ask you to clarify, what would you call a long-standing turf system? Or I'm assuming, let's use a, another word, a mature turf system. Would you take your lead from the work that Porter and Galden yeah, so published years ago? Ballpark, the work that you're referring to, so they're finding it about 10 years to 20, 25 years. That would be a a fairly uh, long-standing ter- uh, stand on there. Okay, so that's the long-standing turf stand. Yeah. But, you know, you know and I know a-, a lot of our professional turf managers are growing grass and sand. Yeah. How much does all of this change when we're in sand? Because I have to tell you, Carl, when I look at sand systems, they look like they have more organic matter accumulated at the surface than soil-based systems. And, you know, I think about fairways versus approaches versus putting greens on a golf course, right? A, a native loamy soil, uh, a top-dressed modified loamy soil, and then a sand-based USGA green. H- how much do these things change? Because, of course, one of the arguments people make is, well, they're sand. That's why you got to apply this stuff because there's nothing in there. It's sterile or, oh, you need this help because it's sand. How much does it being sand-dominated alter some of the things we're talking about? I think it, I think it does a lot. I mean, some of those, some of those sand spec uh, greens that they have, I, I mean, oftentimes I look at those as almost hydroponic 
systems. They they just have some sand to hold uh, hold some of the roots and stuff in there. But you know, you certainly pick out a big difference. I mean, that those sand-based systems, they, those are definitely going to be different. And they accumulate a fair amount of organic matter at the surface. Yeah, they they do. Um, and so that's and, why I'm wondering: Do we need to keep adding organic matter or carbon to these carbon-rich systems? And is that why we've gone to straight sand top dressing? Because there are people now beginning to question the value of continuing to sand top dress because somehow it creates this layered profile uh, mm-hmm. when you build something, and they'd rather recycle the material that's there. What's your thoughts on this idea of maybe sand systems accumulating so much organic matter that requires so much sand still needs so much help nutritionally, maybe? Yeah, and then, like I said, that's a different beast on there. And, and I suspect why we're getting so much accumulation at the surface is we don't have the decomposition populations or functional groups that are going to break that down as, say, we would have in a, in a, a normal or a mineralized soil system. You know, I don't have a straight answer for you on there. Um, and, and it could very well be. There isn't a straight answer. But the, no, point no. I'm, the, the point that you touched on that's critical as we wrap up this segment is that it appears the biological contribution to organic matter degradation in sand systems is low. And therefore, the most effective way to manage it is to simply dilute it and build a new soil as the plant is accumulating organic matter. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Sure, we do that. But as you just mentioned, we are also then contributing to uh, layering right. within the soil. So we, we address one issue and we create another. I'm chatting with professor and teaching fellow. Congratulations, Carl. That's quite an honor at the University of Connecticut. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We're going to take another break and listen to a message from our sponsors at Dryject and Intelligrow. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Carl, I want to turn our conversation to really what I think has certainly been 
throughout the arc of your career, the whole idea of sensing and monitoring anion membranes and other sorts of things. But lately, it's been chlorophyll index for sure. More recently, NDVI. And so I'd like to talk to you about the basis of some of this spectral imaging and remote sensing. I I know what you keep saying to me and have been trying to teach us in this industry is we need objective targets. (laughs) You, You can't tell me it's sort of shades of green. We have to determine and get some sense on objective targets and and measurements of things and being more data-driven rather than left to your own devices and uh, fertilize on a calendar or fertilize based on green color or fertilize based on dogma like late season fertility. So trying to find tools to do this, I mean, it still seems like we're in its infancy. Are we any further along with using some of this technology than we were just, say, 20 years ago when you started using it? Oh, yeah. I I think there have been major leaps in there. And again, I take my cue from the production ag end of it and then the look at the applications that can be done on turf. Now, as I said before, a lot of these devices and instruments now are commercially available for, you know, relatively low cost now. But unless you have some sort of benchmark value or something to help you guide, you can get a number But that number is not going to mean anything to you. So what we have done and what I advocate is that we find out in any any site, any turf area can be site-specific, is getting a benchmark value. And that would be what the manager views as being optimum or preferred. Then you can get spectral imaging on that through any of those devices. And some of these now come in little apps. You can put them on your phone mm-hmm. or iPad mm-hmm. and go out and snap a picture of that and get a get a value, like dark green index. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was a dark green color index mm-hmm. uh, in addition to some of the other. And then from there, that can help guide what you want to do relative to the value that you get from the surrounding surface. Well, since you've brought up some benchmarking values, and I want to get into some of your sensor work later, but let's let's start with something that's pretty widely spoken about. You touched on it earlier. I want to take a deep dive into tissue testing because there are services now that will test your tissue regularly and dial in your fertility based on those tissue tests. Do we really feel like tissue tests are really able to tell us how we should guide our fertility? Because I thought one of the things you said earlier was they generally lack good correlation. So what's your opinion on tissue tests as a tool? It looks like one of the sole tools with soil testing that people are using to guide their fertility. Yeah, maybe not so much correlation. So what I mentioned was calibration. Ah. So we can get the values, but... There's just not a lot of data research that's been done on calibrating once you have a certain value, then how much do you need to put on to reach some optimum value of response? So we we have the measurements, and there are some benchmark values relative to concentrations that people have published, and some of our work looked at that, and and from some of the earlier work, we're, we're not far off from that. But the follow-up to that is then once you have a certain value that's less than, say, the optimum value, then how much do you need to put on? That's where we're really lacking in in some of the science and the research to tell us how much to do. 
Now, from a common sense standpoint, if you're closest to the optimum value, you don't need much fertilizer to put on. The further you're away from that, the more you're going to have to put on. Has the research, in your opinion, to this day concluded what is an optimum value, or would that be a moving target through the season? Yeah. Is there a sense that there is a percentage of N that is optimum? Overall, I think some of the values that we've come up with and some of the values that were published in the 70s or so, those are pretty close overall, but you're absolutely right. What time of the year? And then we're looking at different species and what different cutting heights we're using. So that gets to be trickier. So let me pick up, we can maybe tell, we can say there's a range maybe it should be on, uh, maybe we're not sure about optimum, but but I want to follow the thread now down, how much do you put on when it's not optimum? Because I, I think it's interesting, you know, you look at Doug Soldat's work with phosphorus, for example, as, you know, it, it gets to five or six part per million, his sand-based bent grass green in Wisconsin and it's purple and not growing, and it gets to seven part per million, and it's perfect. And it's not different from 17 part per million, 50 part per million, 100 part per million, except the more P you got in the soil, the more likely you're going to get P in your runoff. So there's that sort of light switch approach to where you need to be. I don't got the sense we're anywhere near that for nitrogen. No, and I agree with you on that. That would be from a total nitrogen. Now, uh, some of the other work we've been looking at is doing what we call a sap nitrate test. So that would be taking the you know, clippings and expelling out, we call it, it's not really the sap, it's just all the juice, I guess, and putting that into a hydraulic press, pressing that out, and then measuring that. And so we've been getting and trying to correlate that with responses on there. And that may be a closer way to monitor, especially with nitrogen, because that's something a superintendent or a golf course manager or a turf manager could do on site. Wouldn't have to send out to any laboratory. But that would allow and follow the changes that you would have, say, seasonally or with different species as well. But wouldn't it be better if we could just fly a drone over that took a picture every day that told us the nutrient status so that it could guide our GPS sprayer to just target the applications exactly where we needed them at variable rate? How far are we from that, Carl? Well, I don't think we're that far at all. We have the technology and using the production ag technology and and procedures, we just need to scale that down. So all that is there, it just needs to be taken to a scale that can be done on, say, a golf course or athletic field or even residential or institutional lawn areas. So I, I, I don't think we're that far away. That technology is available. So there's a lot of NDVI discussion going on, right? Yeah, every company that's doing any remote sensing is is doing NDVI. And I want to hear from you as a scientist. You know, when I'm looking at these really nice rasterized pictures from satellite imagery or drone imagery, or even TurfView's got a, a fixed camera that's looking at these spectral things, can I trust these pictures or, I mean, because I see you having to take a lot of measurements to see if these pictures are any good, especially what I liked about your anthracnose work with Ingrigiato from 16 was the way you felt like, hey, 
we think we got this dialed in pretty good. It's like if you keep your NDVI values between 9.4 and 9.8 and your chlorophyll range between this and that, uh, you know, you're you're less than 32% chance of this and 98% chance of that. Carl, it looks like you got it. Can I trust those pictures? Well, I think they'll be site-specific. So I think every turf site will have a different optimum value for the most part. But I think with the technology, that's why we will need, within any one given field, we're going to have to have a strip or an area that represents the preferred or optimum turf. And then we can get a value from that. And then from the rest of the area, we can look at that relative to that particular strip. So in production ag, they call that the sufficiency index, Mm -hmm. where there's what they call the well-fertilized strip. Mm -hmm. And then the values are taken from that. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the remaining field, Mm -hmm. you can get values from that. And then it's put into a relationship, Mm -hmm. a little ratio into the well-fertilized strip. So there's no reason we can't do that. On, on a turf area. Well, and that, but yeah, that's right. There isn't a reason we can't do it, but you know, and I know production ag has that very simple yield objective that we don't always have. And then I'll just ask you further. I see spectral imaging pretty relevant in water management. It lo- looks pretty good across the board that this technology has a fair amount of promise with You know, the integration with soil moisture sensors and spectral imaging on the surface, there certainly is a fair amount of promise for water management. I got to tell you, the nutrient thing perplexes me more, uh, how to use the spectral imaging for that sort of stuff to see if there's nutrient stress. And and, then if you see a different, you know, an NDVI image that's off, how do you then know what that is? You got to go through a litany of stuff is in, in my mind. It could be water most of the time. So would you speak to that a little bit, Carl? Yeah. You've got to use common sense with these things. It's not going to be the panacea. Just send the robotic drone out, take a picture, and then program in the sprayer or the fertilizer to go out and the spreader to hit that. So even though with this technology, whomever's going to use this information has got to use some common sense with that. And so I don't think it's going to alleviate us from making some sort of informed decision, and it could be a number of things. Could be water, could be diseases, could be insects. The interesting thing is, and I'll and I'll just interrupt you for the last time as we wrap up our conversation, Carl. You know, it seems to me that there's this a bit of reluctance, right? No one is going to turn the keys of the management over to sensors and monitors. We need to find a way to take the right data and then incorporate it into our thinking. But there still seems to be some resistance to even using this stuff. It just feels like many of the practitioners I meet were like, yeah, I can do it with art. I don't need data or, yeah, these things are, I can't afford these things or it takes too much time or, yeah, I'm afraid that might replace me. I I have this sense, and I'd like to get your opinion on it, that we're doing all this work in science to develop these technologies, that there's this inherent resistance to adopting uh, in the turf industry, certainly a resistance that ag has overcome, we have not been able to overcome yet. Can you speak for a second as we wrap up about maybe what some of the sort of resistance is to some of this stuff? Yeah, I've I've seen that and I've experienced it firsthand with the reluctance on there. 
But when I look back from a historical standpoint, I guess every new introduction of any change in management, it always brings some sort of risk. And so it just may be in the turf industry, there's a greater aversion to risk and, and change than there is, say, in the, in the production ag end, end of it. And although I worked a lot with farmers, I mean, they are hard to change, but in the turf industry, maybe a little more reluctant to do so. <laughs> well, Carl, what a joy chatting with you. Thanks so much for the insight, and so glad you're still teaching our next generation of young professionals about progressive fertilization. Hey, thanks, Frank. Welcome. Professor Carl Guillard is a professor of agronomy and a teaching fellow at the University of Connecticut, where he teaches a variety of courses in the plant science and landscape architecture program. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligrow, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York, by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business management John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.